So we've been in the book of Genesis, just started uh, uh, part two of the book of Genesis. We just watched that video. Uh, last week we did 11 chapters, and uh, that was a, a bold undertaking for us, but we're only going to be in about two and a half chapters this evening, so um, hopefully it won't be quite as much ground to cover. We're going to be in Genesis 23, 1 through 25, 11. And we're thinking about living in light of God's promises. <coughs> That's on page 23 in your Red Pew Bibles. So again, if uh, the Red Pew Bibles, there should be two in each, in each row. So please pull those out and, and follow along with me. We're going to be reading some larger chunks of text. And so it will really help you this evening to follow along in the scriptures when we read it together. So I encourage you to open up to page 23. Uh, and Genesis 23, 1 through 25, 11. We're talking about Abraham and his family. And last week we talked about how God gave Abraham three big promises. And this sets the whole entire Bible into motion. It sets the whole grand narrative of scripture and the grand narrative of history of redemption in motion. And those three promises have to do with land that represented God's presence, like the Garden of Eden. Seed, people, a son that would grow into a great nation. And third, he promised Abraham that he would bring God's blessing to the world. Redemption would come to the world via Abraham and his family. Well, in, in our text today, in this passage, we're going to look at how two of those promises are developed. The land promised is developed in chapters 23 and 25 through the story about Abraham and Sarah. And their death and burial in chapter 23 and 25. The, promi the, the promise of a people of a seed, of, of a family, a great family, is then developed in chapter 24 through Isaac finding a bride. But both of these stories ask one major question. How in the world is God going to fulfill his promises to his people? And the answer is the main point, I think, of the text, and I hope it's the main point of the sermon. God's going to fulfill his purposes by guiding each step the people take. He's in control. And also, on the other hand, entrusting humans, people, to take bold steps of faith. There's a bit of a tension there. On the one hand, we're supposed to learn from these stories. Trust God. He's directing every, every little step that is happening along the way. And at the same time, that doesn't mean be passive. It means take bold, take bold actions of faith. And we see both exhibited in these stories. So we're going a bit out of order today. You'll notice about this passage is that the death of Sarah is recorded in chapter 23. The death of the patriarch, is Abraham, is recorded in chapter 25. Sandwiched between those two deaths and burial scenes, you have the story in chapter 24 of Isaac 
finding a bride, she would be then the mother of all Israel and God's promised people. So that's where we'll go first. Chapter 24, God provides a wife for Isaac and a mother for Israel. God provides a wife for Isaac and a mother for Israel. (coughs) And again, this story develops the promise that God would make them into a great nation, a great people. Let's read through the whole story in Genesis. We're going to cut out a bit, but we're going to read most of it. So uh, read with me in verse 1 of chapter 24. Abraham was now very old. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. And he said to his senior servant in the household, the one in charge of all that, that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living. But you will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send an angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for for, uh, Aram of Neharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside of the town. It was toward evening, the the time that the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll, I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder she was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham, Abraham's brother, Nahor. <coughs> the woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar with water, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered, her jar to, lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, born, born of Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the, the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. 
As for me, the Lord has led me on this journey to the house of my master's relatives. The young woman ran back. The young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebecca had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the, as, as, at the spring. As soon as, she had, as soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and had heard all that Rebecca had told him, he said to her, uh, all, sorry, all that what, what he had said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man went to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought out for the camels and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, said Laban. We'll break. He's going to repeat the story now. He, he asked for uh, Rebecca to marry his master's son, Isaac, and he retells the story, and we pick up back in verse 50. Okay, we're going to pick up back in verse 50. Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebekah. Take her and go. Let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they had said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver and and jewels and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, Send me on my way to my master. But her brother and mother replied, Let the young woman remain with us ten days or so, and then then you can go. But he said to them, Do not detain me. Now the Lord has granted success to my journey. Send me on my way, so I may go to my master. Then they said, Let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebekah and asked her, Will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent her sister Rebekah on their way, along with the nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they had blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. <coughs> then Rebekah and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from Birlai Lahai Roy, from where he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw the camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. <coughs> it's a long story. Abraham is now very old. His first wife has died, and now he's got to find a, a wife for his promised son, Isaac. So he sends his senior servant off to go find a wife, but not from the Canaanites whom he's living, from his old country, from his clan. He knows that the Canaanites are a wicked people. In fact, they were cursed by God. But his family is in the line of Shem, one of Noah's sons, who was in this promised line. The servant has a potential objection in verse 5. What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? 
Should I then take Isaac back to your old country? And it's a reasonable question. Why would a woman who has grown up with her family and friends and everything she knows get up and leave just because I've come and said, my son's this promised heir, you should come and marry him. (coughs) But Abraham won't budge an inch. Under no circumstance will Abraham allow Isaac return to his old country. He knows that God has promised his family this land. And even more, he knows that this is the way God is going to bless all the world. So Abraham trusts that God will provide the right woman. From the promised clan, a woman who will join her son from a faraway faraway land and put her trust also in this promise. So Abraham tells his servant, God's going to send you an angel that's going to direct your path. Abraham's saying, God will lead you. Trust him. Believe me. He'll provide a way. Well, in the second scene, the servant sets off <coughs> for the, his Abraham's hometown of Nahor. And when he arrives in verse 12, he immediately prays to the Lord for guidance in finding a suitable woman. He even asks for a specific sign. Lord, let the right woman come to this well and not only provide water for me, but also for my camels. It's markedly different than how Abraham and Sarah often acted in the previous narrative, where they tried to manufacture God's promise. Here he's praying to God, saying, God, you lead the way. I trust you. The servant doesn't rely on his own strength or cunning. He he looks to the Lord for guidance. Well, in verse 15, we meet Rebecca. In fact, God answers his prayer before he even finishes the prayer. Verse 15, before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. There you go. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah. So she's from the promised line. The woman was beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She's beautiful, and in the text indicates she's pure. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and then came up again. She's industrious. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered her jar to her hands and gave, gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw more water, water from your, for your camels. She goes back and draws more and draws more. She's industrious and generous. The servant had been watching her closely. And when she, when she was finished, he knew this is, this is the one. Rebecca invites the servant back to his house. And the servant again closes the scene by praying a, a prayer of praise to the Lord. Thank you for providing every little detail and for being faithful not only to me, but to Abraham and, and this covenant. <coughs> I want to pause for a moment and ask, what are we to learn from this small episode in this story? Are we given a model for testing God's precise will for our lives in this story? Is this how God wants us to decide every morning whether we should eat cereal or bacon? Kind of putting God to the test. Well, I'm going to go down to the refrigerator. If I open the refrigerator and there's only two, if there's only two pieces of bacon left, Lord, I will know that's a sign that I, those two pieces of bacon were left for me. Okay, more seriously, is this how we should approach choosing a school? 
or choosing a church or a spouse is it a model for us of discerning God's will specifically for our lives? <coughs> I would say no. You see, in the Old Testament, God had not yet revealed himself or his will through a completed book. That's what we call the Bible. Not only that, he hadn't even revealed himself fully through the person of Jesus, who is God in the flesh. So before there was God's completed book, and before Jesus came to earth, God often revealed what he wanted people to do through direct encounters. So it makes sense then that Abraham's servant asked God for a very direct, specific way of finding a suitable bride. This, though, is not a model for how you should make decisions. We do have God's completed word, and we have seen the fulfillment of who God is in Jesus. <coughs> okay, then how do we receive God's guidance for us today? We do it first by knowing the God who is in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God. Boom, here you go, right here. Your sanctification. Your conforming into the image of Christ is God's will for your life. Now, that might not tell you what to eat for breakfast tomorrow morning. But as you mine the scriptures... To see what Jesus looks like, the picture of Jesus, the one he sets forth. You then have a picture of the way you should act and live throughout all life. That picture of Jesus that you dig in scripture to find will then inform every action you make. Secondly, invite God's people to speak into your life. That's how you find guidance. <coughs> The church is the place where God's spirit resides. We talked about that a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 12. Brothers and sisters, if you want the spirit's guidance, then you need to tap into the people in your church who are committed not only to you, but to Jesus, who have the spirit. More specifically, you as a congregation have marked off elders, pastors, to shepherd, to care for you as a congregation. And the, the three elders of this church have been set apart, among other things, because of two reasons. Hopefully we've saturated biblical knowledge and biblical wisdom. And two, hopefully we have shown to some extent that we are living out that biblical wisdom in actual life. So when you're struggling to see how God would have you respond, have you considered asking your other church members who have the Spirit or your elders who are marked off to help guide you? It's not that they're, they're sinners just like you. They're, they're wrong. They're not infallible. But they have the Spirit in them, and God has instituted the church and its leaders to help guide you through some of the things that aren't as explicit. Brothers and sisters, we are not naturally, as humans, very good at seeing our blind spots. That's why they're blind spots. 
But that's why the Christian life is lived out not in isolation, but in community. And not just any community, but a community of people who have the Spirit of God living in them. Okay, okay. So we know this episode isn't giving us a model for knowing God's specifics about our lives. It is, however, giving us a model of reliance on God. (coughs) Did you notice how the scene begins and ends? With prayer. The servant prays for guidance at the beginning and then praises God for the provision at the end. Do you go this quickly to God in prayer for guidance? I sadly do not. Do you frequently thank him for small provisions in your life? This is a very good kind of barometer, whether we go to God in prayer, for if we actually have faith in this God and trust him. (coughs) Is faith just something you, faith in God just something you tick off a box, something you kind of ascribe to? Or is your faith living? Does it actually work its way out in your life? So that you actually talk to God as if he's real. Do that, like the servant here. (coughs) Scene three. The servant meets the family and makes the marriage proposal. As we transition to the scene, Rebecca brings Abraham's servant back to her household. And we meet her brother Laban. But as Laban enters the story, we see a bit of his devious nature that will come out more clearly in the rest of the book of Genesis. It's a pretty crafty thing this, the author is doing here of Genesis. Verse 30 notes this. Look at verse 30. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on her sister's arms and heard Rebecca tell what the man had said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed of the Lord. One writer says this, Whereas Rebecca innocently rushed out to show hospitality to a stranger, Laban is gripped by greed. So Abraham's servant explains that he's looking for a wife for Isaac. And he recounts the whole story of how they had met and how God had worked out every little detail. So in verse 50, Laban and Bethuel, Rebecca's father, recognize from this retelling of the story that God is clearly guiding his hand in this marriage. They say, this is from the Lord. We have no right to say no to God. So the servant bows once again and prays, thank you, Lord. I know you have your hand, even in making them willing to send their daughter away. The marriage is almost delayed, but Rebecca chooses to go. There's a slight setback in verse 55. The servant doesn't want to delay. He wants to get immediately back to the promised land, to Isaac. But Laban and his mother object. Let her stay a little longer. Again, it might seem innocent, and it probably is. But knowing Laban's character later in the book, we do get the sense that maybe he's going back on his word. So they call Rebecca and ask her, Will you go with this man? And at a definitive climactic point in the narrative, Rebecca responds, I will go. She is personally resolved to be the mother of God's people. This isn't something merely forced on her from her family. It's her faith welling up that God has chosen her to continue God's chosen line. 
And in the closing scene, (coughs) Sarah travels back with the servant to a distant land to marry a man she's never met. But she trusts that this land is sacred space. And she believes that this man is the heir of God's promises. The conclusion is quite beautiful. Isaac is out in the fields waiting and he looks up. Then the text says, she looks up at the same time. This is kind of like love at first sight, perhaps, in the Bible. Well, anyways, they meet and and enter Sarah's tent and they consummate their marriage. And the last words of the story are, Isaac is comforted after his mother's death. God had provided a wife for the heir and a mother for God's people. (coughs) So why is this narrative here? I would suggest it's not a dating manual. Maybe some, actually I've heard some guys preach it as that. It's, it's, that's a really poor way to do it. It's not a paradigm for discerning God's precise plan for your life. <clears throat> so what is it doing? It's showing us two things. First, it's showing us that God is guiding and working out all the little details of his promise of redemption. God answers the servant's prayer even before he's finished. Rebecca is exactly the type of person to be the mother of Israel. Beautiful, promised line, pure, industrious, generous. Even Lot and Bethuel, Lot's a negative character in the story for the most part, can see, clearly see God's hand in, the, in this meeting between, Isaac and the, between Rebecca and the servant. But even more, the Lord prepared Rebecca's heart to make an, an unimaginable choice to go back to a distant land, away from everything she's known, to marry a man she's never met. <coughs> Which leads me to the second thing we learn from this passage. Although God is controlling every step along the way, his promises are fulfilled by humans taking bold steps of faith. Even difficult steps of faith. When the servant asks him, what if I can't find a woman in this country to come back? He says, whatever you do, don't take my son back there. And don't let my son marry one of the Canaanites here. You see, Abraham doesn't have all the answers yet, does he? He doesn't know what will happen if no one agrees to marry his son from his own clan. But he does operate from what God has clearly told him. Don't intermarry your son, God's promised heir, into a wicked and cursed people. And he knows, don't let your son forsake this sacred land just to get a wife. Listen, you might not have all the answers about what God is doing in your life. There's a hundred different ways you could apply this, right? But in line with the text, you might say, some of you out there, I desperately want to be married. God, why haven't you given me a Christian spouse? You might be thinking, I don't even know where I'd ever meet a Christian spouse. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. You don't know the answer to that question.
But trust God. Trust his goodness. He won't hold back what is good from you. And if he does, in some mysterious way, holding back what you think is good, is good in his mysterious plan. So trust him. He does love you and he does care for you. But don't do what God has expressly prohibited in order to manufacture happiness. Don't say, fine God, you can't give me a a Christian spouse, just I'll take anyone I can find. Operate within what God has told you and trust him to work out all the other details. Some of you already find yourselves married to perhaps a non-believer. And you might be thinking, Luke, God, this is really difficult to live with someone who doesn't share my either faith or my values. You, friend, have an amazing opportunity to display the gospel in front of someone who lives in intimate contact with you. Show them what the gospel looks like living out in your heart. Respect your spouse, even when they don't act in a respectful way. Honor them even when they don't act honorably. Love them even when they don't, when they aren't so lovely. Pray for them even when they frustrate you. Is this not what Christ has done for us in the gospel? You have an opportunity to display the gospel to someone who doesn't agree with you by the way you live and act in a very intimate relationship. Moving on. (coughs) In the previous story, the author's focus was on extending the promise of a great family that would eventually become a great nation. And now, in the, the stories on either side of it, God provides a burial place for Abraham and Sarah and a small piece of the promised land. God develops his promise to give Abraham a land. Let's read in chapter 23, verse 1. <coughs> chapter 23. Sarah lived to be 120 or yeah, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose and beside and beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to him, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. (coughs) He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field 
and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of all my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in, the, in their hearing, Listen to me, if, if you will, I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed, out, uh, sorry, and weighed out for him the price that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah, near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites, who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. <coughs> in these two passages, we have the passing of the torch, the final passing of the torch between Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah. And in one of his final acts before he dies, Abraham purchases a plot of land in Canaan, the promised land. He purchases it as a burial site for his wife and eventually for him. At the beginning of the story, Sarah dies and Abraham grieves. Sarah, like Abraham, had moments of faithlessness, but ultimately... This woman was a glorious picture of faithfulness to God. Reflect back on her life. Not only once, but twice, she had been hung out to dry by her husband in a foreign king's harem. She had been cursed with barrenness for 90 years, and then she was mocked and ridiculed by her servant because of it. She may have even been aware that her husband was asked to sacrifice her only son. The New Testament calls her a faithful and righteous woman. But she had passed and Abraham was heartbroken. So Abraham wants to bury her in the promised land, the sacred space that symbolized God's presence with them. But there's a problem. He can't. He's still a sojourner, a foreigner in the land. He actually identifies as a foreigner and stranger in verse 4. Although he's well-respected, they call him a prince among them, he still has no right, no legal claim, humanly speaking, to any of the promised land. (coughs) This actually reminds me of how property works in the United Arab Emirates. Recently, I had the opportunity to go to Dubai in the UAE, and only the Emiratis, the natives there in, in the UAE, can actually purchase and own land. Even if you and your family have been living there for three or four generations, you can rent a piece of land, but you cannot own actual land in that place. It's only for the Emiratis. Ironically, you can rent space or rent land up to 99-year leases, but that, I guess that kind of gets around the problem, doesn't it? The same idea is what you see here in ancient Canaan. 
The Hittites own this land. They're happy for Abraham to dwell here, but it's not their custom or, or law to allow him to have a permanent claim to the land. <coughs> so he goes to them the first time. And he asked, to sell, he asked them to sell him a small property as a burial ground for Sarah. They seem to respond positively. Take the best tomb among us that you can find. But herein lies the subtle problem in the words that are used. You see, he asked for a permanent burial site, but they offer him a tomb. The author is subtly suggesting that Abraham is asking for something permanent, but what they're offering is not something permanent. It's something less than permanent. A temporary tomb. Abraham then asks a specific person, Ephron, son of Zophar, if he can have a specific cave, the cave of Machpelah, for his burial ground. This was the very location where God had originally cut his covenant with Abraham, where he had split the animal pieces apart, and then God had passed through the part, parts of the animals so as to suggest, I'm going to take on my part of the covenant and your part of the covenant. So Abraham wants to purchase the land. So he says, I will pay the full price. And scholars note that this is a legal term signifying a payment that is irrevocable. <coughs> but Zophar responds and says, no, I'll give you this cave and the land that surrounds it. But again, Abraham knows he must purchase the land for it to be irrevocably his. So he presses even further. Abraham says in front of all the people of the land, verse 13, listen to me if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Finally, Zophar agrees and sells, Ephron of Zophar agrees and sells him the cave and the surrounding land for 400 shekels of silver. Verse 17 says the land was deeded over to Abraham. It was contractually Abraham's land and he had a rightful legal claim to a small bit of the land of Canaan in the promised land. Finally, after all these years, 175 years old, and he actually owns a small piece of the land that God had promised him. <coughs> Again, what is God showing us? Interesting story. What is he telling us in the story? One thing that we notice in both stories we've read today is that God is carefully controlling every step along the way to fulfill his promises. He softens the hearts of Hittites so that we have no reason to be, uh, who, who have naturally no reason to be generous to Abraham. But the real emphasis here is the bold acts of faith that, take, that are taken by Abraham. God has promised him and his descendants this land. But he does not take God's promise as a justification for him to remain passive. Faithfulness and trust don't mean God will work it out and I'm going to sit back, relax, and do nothing. No, God started to fulfill his promises to Abraham by prompting Abraham to go to the gate of the city and negotiate a claim to the land. <coughs> the fact that God is in control, the fact that God has given us promises, great promises, those facts 
are not to meant to make you passive Christians, but bold Christians. Let's reflect on a few. God has promised to make you fully into his image if you're a Christian. That does not mean sit back and relax. It means strive. It means work hard to look like Jesus. Make bold, hard decisions. If looking like Jesus means anything, getting rid of the internet on your phone, then do it. If looking like Jesus means getting an accountability partner to ask you hard questions, then do it. If looking like Jesus means looking at your child in the face and confessing your sin to them because they see you're a fraud, then do it. Act boldly in faith. Second, we believe God is in control of bringing people to faith, don't we? We believe that if someone's going to come to faith, God's got to do the work. We can't do it on our own. But that doesn't mean sit back and wait for it to happen. God's promise, his control of even people's hearts means engage your coworker. Ask your neighbor to read the Bible with you once every other week over coffee. It means ask your coworker to read an evangelistic book over your lunch break every Tuesday. Like Abraham, think creatively. Think strategically. But for for God's sake, act boldly is what he's saying. And and by the way, acting boldly doesn't mean you act like an idiot. Abraham doesn't go up to the Hittites and say, Listen, guys, God's promised me all this land. Now hand it over. No. He goes to them on, on their own terms. He's winsome and strategic. He negotiates with them. The problem with us sometimes is that we're very good at thinking strategically and creatively about our retirement plan or an investment portfolio or our next holiday. But we're not as good at thinking strategically, me included. It's been very little time thinking strategically about how to look more like Jesus or how to share the gospel with our unbelieving friends and neighbors. Let's think strategically about those things. Act boldly. In chapter 25, we close here. We find the final transition from Abraham to Isaac. Verse 5 of 25 says, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. We see the transfer. Verse 7, Abraham lived 175 years, then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. (coughs) His sons buried him alongside his wife in the cave of Machpelah in the promised land. Abraham's life was completely transformed by God coming to him and giving him a few promises. And the ending of his life is both sweet 
and if we're honest, a bit sad. I mean, when he first gets the promise, a hundred years earlier, he probably thought, I'm going to be the patriarch, I'm going to be the ruler of a vast territory, flowing with delicacies, wine and milk and honey, and it's going to be filled with commerce. Foreign nations will come to me for help and wisdom. I will be viewed by the world as God's blessed one. And he wouldn't be wrong for thinking that. But a hundred years later, he's 175. And he identifies himself as a foreigner and a stranger in the promised land. He's just got a tiny sliver of the land to his own name. (coughs) He's buried there, and it is a beautiful story. But you do wonder, did he feel like a failure? Or perhaps, did he feel like God had failed him? I'm sure those thoughts entered his mind. Many times. But I also think that somewhere along that way, in those hundred years, Abraham realized that God was taking the long, long route to redemption. And he was just the beginning The little plot of land he acquired was just a sample of the promised land. And even the promised land, I think he began to realize, is just a foretaste of God's ultimate kingdom that should subsume the entire world. Here's why I think that. Let's go to the passage that we read earlier in Hebrews 11, 13-16. This is why I think so. All these people, he's referring to primarily Abraham and Sarah here, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were even foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would, not have, ha- they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham is comfortable being an alien and a stranger in the land. Because his sense of value, his sense of satisfaction, does not come from his current circumstances. But in the conviction that God is going to bring him in his final kingdom. He did greet the promises from a distance. We have seen them in their fullness, in Jesus. He is the true presence of God. Everything that the promised land symbolized. Jesus is the true Son of God the only son of Abraham who could fulfill the covenant. But we still feel like sojourners and strangers in the land. In fact, Peter even says so in the New Testament. We truly are the the minority. Because in... (coughs) 
In God's mysterious plan, Jesus came to secure salvation for his people and a kingdom for his people. But that kingdom is started in the hearts of the people who are his church. It's a spiritual kingdom. And while Jesus reigns in our hearts, we wait for him to come again and make the spiritual kingdom a physical reality. So we identify with him. And we don't have to be worried when all of God's promises don't always seem to be ringing true in our day-to-day experience. Like that small sliver of the promised land, this church, where God is actually present, right? Spiritually speaking. And an estimated 30 million other churches meet today. 30 million. As a reminder, as a foretaste of that coming kingdom. So, today, act out in faith. Patiently. Let's pray. Father, uh, you are weaving together a grand story of the world and a grand story of redemption that often mystifies us. And yet, in your beauty, you bring so much clarity to how should we should live and how we make it through. And I pray that that clarity would come from the, the, for all these people here today, that there is a coming kingdom and that the only way to be a part of that kingdom is to turn from your sin and identify with Jesus who has taken on our sin for us. I pray that we would trust in his life as the true presence of God and as the true son of Abraham for us. In Jesus' name, amen.